0: You are listening to Win Win, a podcast brought to you by the global nonprofit Win, Women in Innovation. Each episode features inspiring innovators from the startup world, innovation consultancies, and Fortune 500 companies who share their innovation secrets and career trajectories every Monday. As for me, I'm your host, Zoya Kozikov, global marketing lead at Win by Night and product manager and university level faculty by day. Hello, hello, everyone, and I hope that you're enjoying the summer months and getting some time off and hopefully listening to this podcast from a beach bed or something like that. Perhaps I'm projecting because I am on vacation and you can definitely hear it from this intro. Today is also an especially fun episode, though, because our guest is not very traditional when it comes to the job title of the type of woman we typically have on this podcast. And while she's not a chief innovation officer, Simone Oliver is the editor-in-chief of Refinery 29, one of the most innovative digital media companies out there who really pioneered digital media and digital storytelling. I love Simone's own story and point of view on innovation as someone with over 15 plus years of experience in digital, which is quite unheard of. She goes so far back as a digital OG that she started the New York Times' first ever fashion style Instagram account, which boasts over 3 million followers today. Fun fact is that they actually pushed back on her starting it because they didn't think that the platform could drive traffic and audience, which is obviously laughable today but things like that though really are what makes Simone not just a content expert but really a digital disruptor at her core. We really get into it from her beginnings as a Howard University alum to her 13 years at the Times as well as her work at Condé Nast, Allure and Facebook and Instagram. Simone has incredible advice around navigating a career as a woman and a black woman and how she was able to shatter multiple ceilings, and honestly, she's just getting started. You'll hear me fangirling multiple times, as I think being a refinery fan is a core millennial trait, but this was so inspiring and so fun, and I hope you enjoy it. I will definitely be following Simone on her journey, and I hope you join me in supporting her by sharing this episode and following along, too. Hello, Simone.
1: Welcome to the Win Win Podcast. Hi, thank you for having me. I've really been looking forward to this.
0: Yes, me too. So your journey begins at Howard University where you didn't actually study journalism, but you did all the journalism things. So you edited other people's papers to make some side cash. You got involved with a school paper. You took editing classes and of course wrote things too. So at the time, what was the landscape of journalism and what was the appeal of the industry or all those activities for you?
1: Wow, you really did your homework there. Yes, <laughs> definitely did all of those things. Um, the landscape at the time um, was very print driven and, you know, and very broadcast driven. Right. And, and I uh, got my first sort of opportunities uh, in the print world and with my school paper. So back then, you know, to see your work, it it, it always got validity validity in the tangible sense, right? And that's where you told stories. That's where you saw the greatest publications in the world. You know, all of the publications that are still pretty much around today were in newspaper, in magazine format. Um, And obviously, the landscape has taken a major, major shift into digital. And that's changed the way we think about storytelling, the way people consume as well, and the way even our businesses are shaped.
0: Yeah, and at the time though, print was was really at the helm and at its peak, but there was the dot com boom. So was that something you were familiar with paying attention to or it just seemed something very separate from journalism at the time?
1: At the time it was a little bit separate because my first exposure was my college school paper and we were definitely in the room doing print, you know, like it was all about sort of getting meeting our print deadlines so that you could get um, the paper to the printer on time. It was happening, but again it was more consumption and it was more of people putting what existed in print and then translating it li- literally like a mirror image onto dot com you know so you have like your Ask G's and your AOLs and yahoos you mm. know that that's sort of the time frame that that we're talking about even Google wasn't even dominating you know in terms of search right. engines, you know. Uh, so the boom really in the di- the digital world didn't happen, you know, in- until further into the 2000s.
0: Right, and you at the end of your studies participated in a new program called the New York Times Student Journalism Institute, which I guess was really your into the industry. And then you spent 13 years at the Times, and through that time, one of the many teams you worked on was the digital team. So. Going off of our conversation, what constituted a digital team back then?
1: Um, So anyone who was a web producer, uh, and what what it meant to be a web producer at that time was kind of similar to what I was just saying is where you take the print uh, stories and you put them online. And back then, some of that was manual, meaning you were doing it with HTML. Um, We did have a content management system, and it was like an old man who had a lot of hip replacement, knee replacement, heart valve replacement, <laughs> you know, one kidney, like it was really a bad CMS. And it, they just kept trying to repair and repair it and keep it alive and keep it moving. So that meant a lot of manual work for the web producers. Um, and then you started to see this shift where instead of just putting what was going in print and already produced on the paper, a lot of us started um, a lot of enterprise reporting and thinking about other stories that we could tell to either supplement or complement, um, or even just brand new stories to tell um, for dot-com first.
0: And you don't have a technical background as far as I'm aware in my stalking shows. And I read somewhere that you <laughs> had like HTML for dummies while you learned. So where do you think your hunger of digital innovation and digital risk-taking come from?
1: Curiosity, hustle, and feeling like I can. You know that that when you start something new, you have that fear of like, oh, am I going to mess this up? um but also you're super curious because you're like oh how does this work so i think i usually lead with the how does this work how do we get this done um and if there is blockage for getting it done, then I try to understand, like, okay, if I don't know how to build the bridge, then like, is there something, Like, is there a book I could read about how to build the bridge? Oh, mm-hmm. you need these materials. Oh, okay, I don't have those materials. And maybe I have some of those materials and I need to get some more. Where do I even get some of those materials? And then just right. keep going from there. Um, so I think subconsciously that's usually my approach. Um, Same for audio recording and editing, same for, you know, video recording and editing um, and just telling stories and switching the way you do journalism. If I'm, you know, coming up to you and I'm writing a print story, what is it that I'm keeping in mind versus if I'm recording audio and I'm interviewing you for the purposes of using that audio as a storytelling tool? um, What are the differences in that conversation? Even just like when you when you take a picture, you're getting your light right. Right. You're getting Mm -hmm. um, your framing right. Your composition, right? And when you're for recording audio, you want to make sure that you use sound and different types of sound to help tell that story. It's another layer to what the brain receives as part of the story.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's playing within the boundaries or maybe a little bit outside of the boundaries, but really honoring the medium is, is what it sounds like. Looking back at those times in the New York Times, some projects you took on during your time in the digital team was editorial lead for the iPad app and also starting the New York Times fashion Instagram account, which has close to 3 million followers today, which is absolutely insane. What were the driving forces behind those mediums and those innovations? And did you have to get buy in and and what was the kind of justification that you used at the time?
1: For the iPad app, that was something that the New York Times um, business leadership felt like, okay, we need to do. And once I got wind of it, I definitely uh, was an emphatic supporter. And where that came from really was a bit of you know, my competitiveness and, and having a chip on my shoulder as a driver, as a motivation, because uh, I had so much respect for and still have so much respect for the New York Times as a brand. You know, there were a lot of other competitors who were moving faster and doing more innovation in, in in media. And I felt like, well, we're more than equipped to do that. So why are we not doing it? And and we could test in these areas. It was really, really important to me that we had, you know, a strategy to innovate and not just pure throwing spaghetti at the wall, but you know, right. have a plan. What are we trying to achieve here? You know, how are we defining success? What does success look like, especially in a space that you usually don't even really have any benchmarks established. Right. Mm -hmm. But usually that was the driving force. And um, in terms of buy-in, you know, like for the iPad app, like I mentioned, that was a company decision uh, for the, for the fashion Instagram account. That was me once again, pushing, you know, to be where our audience was, especially, you know, we had a lot of conversations about who were going to be the young subscribers um, future subscribers of the New York Mm -hmm. times. And I would see that most of our audience who were maybe loyal fashion readers or style or lifestyle readers, they were on Instagram. And, you know, the way you started even just introduce people to the brand, you know, like you you kind of, it's the same way if you're dating, you know, you're like, hi, I'm Simone, you know, and you don't just walk up to someone and kiss them. And some people do that, they usually get arrested, but like the rest of us introduce ourselves. And so in my, you know, opinion, that was a way for us to introduce ourselves to new audiences that weren't necessarily coming to us, you know, on a regular basis or really at all. Right. Um, And that presence is a way to, not just introduce ourselves, but get familiar and to build a relationship with people in the areas that they care most about, which happened to be style and beauty and lifestyle. So I felt really, really, really strongly about that. Um, did not get buy-in off the break at all. Um, <laughs> there's the yeah. thinking back then, this is very early days, but the thinking back then was that Instagram wasn't um, a platform that could link back to our site. and Our, old, our right. goal was always to bring people back to the site and hopefully eventually subscribe. And I thought that that was, at the time, a very short-sighted um, point of view. And I and I knew that the Times brand is so valuable and the, the type of content they were producing was so valuable that, again, it was a way to get people familiar with the brand and introduce them as opposed to just because it doesn't link back, then we just stay where we are. Because people are not going to seek you out just because you're a certain brand. We're past that as far as consumption goes. And
0: Retrospective vision is twenty twenty, and looking back, I mean, you you made you took those risks, and you made all these incredible moves that clearly have paid off. But I always like to think about like the internal stigma versus the external stigma. Um, I, I mentioned this to you earlier when we were chatting. But I'm I'm a product manager, and my grandma every day asks me, okay, just. Can you break it down for me again? Like, how does one manage a product? Like, is that a legitimate career for young people these days? And I'm like, yes, grandma, it's a legitimate career. So what was the stigma around what you were doing, whether that's family or friends or other people? Did they believe in you? Did they think that what you were doing was legitimate?
1: I don't think my family really understood what I've been doing for the past last decade. Like- <laughs> I Sorry, think, mom and dad. <laughs> yeah, like I think, um, I think my like my parents have an idea, but I think, yeah, I think <laughs> I love that question so much and it's making me laugh because it's it's like so right on the nose. Where I, I have um one of my cousins, her mother-in-law still looks for my byline in the New York Times. And like every other Thanksgiving, obviously not this past Thanksgiving, but every other Thanksgiving, she'll be like. I haven't seen your byline in a while, you know? And I'm like, <laughs> nope. <laughs> You're like, I swear
0: I wasn't laid off. Like I had a career path after this, (laughs) uh, you know, which, by the way, after the New York Times, you went off to Condé and then you went uh, to, to Facebook for another three and a half years where you spent time consulting other companies on social media strategy. So like I said, clearly it paid off. But I think at this point between 2017 and 2020, social media was not what it was when you started. So at that time, what were the biggest drivers of innovation that you were seeing being on the other side on a platform and on a platform like facebook specifically
1: um that's a great question i would say audience development is really the biggest driver you know what every media outlet you know usually likes to start with and we would start this conversation you know in the same way with with our partners when i was at facebook and instagram is what are your goals, right? And then like you start there and kind of work your way backwards. If your goals are to develop a more loyal audience or is it scale or is it scale and loyalty? Um, Is it engagement and loyalty? Is it is it revenue? You know, all of those things matter. Obviously, most companies would be like, yes to all of the above, right? But like you have to prioritize. And I think that that path of prioritization, thinking, helping them think about how people were using, how the fans of their brands were using the platform, in a way to best access what they were doing was always what we try to help them through because the platforms are always changing, right? And the amount of capabilities and features and ways in which you could reach your audience was constantly changing. And, and that's where I'd say the biggest opportunity for innovation existed. But at the end of the day, again, you have to prioritize, you know, what are your goals? What are your resources after that? You know, after you talk about your goals um, and then how are you going to get the most bang for your efforts?
0: And I feel like you strike me as somebody who comes into places, looks around, sees the boundaries, and is like, come on, let's push them. Let's push them out. So (laughs) clearly you you were doing that in in traditional media. So what boundaries and what buttons were you pressing in Facebook?
1: (laughs) You know what's so funny? I'm such a rule follower. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so clearly I was completely off. <laughs> no, no I, think, I think you're getting at something. When we're, when we're done, I'm going to be thinking about this probably for the rest of the week. You know, like <laughs> interesting. Um, sometimes people see things within you that you may not see within yourself, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think at Facebook, I, I wouldn't say it was boundaries because what I loved about working there was that there weren't too many boundaries. It was like, yes, we have very clear goals or team goals or company goals their individual goals. And I love that sort of structure and tend to thrive in that structure. But outside of that, what I loved about that place was they were like, oh, you have an idea? Okay, test it. Now, if you keep mm. testing the same thing and you're not getting anywhere, then yes, don't waste time or resources on that. What I noticed that I am good at is not necessarily boundary pushing, but seeing the white spaces, right? And and being and thinking about, okay, well, how does filling the white spaces get us closer to where we want to be and sometimes faster or more efficiently or more creatively? And at Facebook, I was able to identify White spaces that would better serve the partners, the media outlets that I was working with. And then I would pitch ideas um, to our leadership there and say, hey, I noticed that we don't have X as a way to like help, you know, our partners reach their goals. I want to try this thing. Can we do it? And they'd be like, yeah, go ahead. And I was like, wait, what? We, we were, like for real? Like for <laughs> real, exactly. Um, and so that's where, you know, I was able to sort of accelerate and thrive and, and also like meet the, the the qualifications of my job um, and help the, the the outlets that I was tasked with helping.
0: So something else that I think about is like when you were at the New York Times at first, so you, you climbed this incredible corporate ladder and then you went on to work at Condé and then Facebook. So how, how do you think that at this point, what were some tangible things? things that you think you did that enabled you to, to grow such a ladder, especially in an industry which doesn't have a lot of women at the top, and especially not a lot of women of color at the top?
1: When you have ideas, backing uh, backing them up, you know, kind of report out your ideas, right? Like, I think um, when you have what you consider to be a big idea, something that may, may go outside of people's comfort zones applying your journalistic practices there. Right. So it's like you report out a story. And, and for me, I would apply what I learned in journalism, hands on to big ideas within organizations. So, you know, answering the why answering the how, um, helping people mm-hmm. paint the picture, because what I'm starting, well, what if what I started to see was if people can not visualize it with you, like if they're not along for the journey, then it's harder for you to get buy in. I still struggle with that, you know. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. Painting that picture, I admire people who sit in a room and they they paint this whole painting, and you're like, I want to be a tree in that painting. Like I'm very, <laughs> yes, you know. And for me, sometimes I tend to talk in bullets or I talk too fast. So I want to get a little bit more charismatic in the way I deliver. But I think mm-hmm. the meat of what I'm trying to accomplish, I try to be really thorough in like how would it help us achieve X goal? This is the resources that it will require. This is where there's risk. This is where there's not risk. This is where we're well suited and we're well primed, mm-hmm. you know, um, trying to sort of come with a, a business rationale, not always business, but a creative rationale, but a rationale nonetheless. Um, as to why something is helping us achieve our goals. And that I feel like on one hand, a lot of other people have not had to do that. They are just given opportunities and and they kind of get to go out on a limb. But for my personal experience, um, I've found that to be an effective uh, strategy,
0: we always have women come on this podcast and, and the, the kind of range of discussion around of gender is so, so diverse and different. I mean, I've had women come on here and say, I t- try to kind of ignore the fact that I'm a woman in a room as, a, as I'm storytelling or I'm getting by and I just want my ideas heard and I want them in. And then there are people who say, no, like I want to call out the fact that I'm the only woman in the room or I'm the only black woman in the room. You know, we're sitting here and I, and I see the video and I see you're wearing a shirt that says first, but not the last and you're a Howard alum, like our incredible VP. So do you incorporate your story and yourself in that storytelling that you do to raise the importance of some of these things of of gender and of race as you try to get your voice heard?
1: Yes. And it's case by case, right? Sometimes it's with a t-shirt. Sometimes like I have a bunch of pins on my jacket that like, Mm -hmm. you know, that they run the gamut of like protect your black girl magic. America needs journalists, you know, there's mm. equality. There's, you know, my brand, there's all sorts of, sometimes I bring that into a very, very corporate meeting. Obviously in mm. person it's different. Um, You know, I didn't even realize you could read this. Like <laughs> I just put this t-shirt on because it was clean, but I have it because I believe it. And so for me, it's case by case. There are moments where we're talking about a, an, an an issue and, you know, I'll preface whatever I'm about to say with, as a black woman, you know, it's been my experience at X, Y, and Z. And I think that that's important to this conversation because X, and I'm thinking that in my head, I don't have to say, I think this is important to this. I don't feel the need to do that, but I'm just mm-hmm. stating, you know, why my perspective is valuable. There's other times where I'll be in a room and I'll be really honest. And I don't want to, I don't want to sound like Stephen Colbert, like I don't see race. I know that he used to say that, mm-hmm. as, you know, as satire, mm-hmm. but there are moments when we're just talking about a product, we're talking about a story, talking about something, and I actually don't notice that I'm looking at all the squares in my video, and I'm the only brown square. You know, like I it, mm. sometimes I don't even notice. Sometimes that's all I'm thinking about. It really does. Right. Uh, it will always be present, whether it's conscious or subconscious. But um, whether or not I integrate it into the conversation is very case by case. But it's always going to be a part of who I am and what I believe in, and who I am as a person.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And and on a bit of a different note, you went on maternity leave while you were at Facebook. Was that something you were concerned about? Or did you feel like, you know, women have children. I'm a woman that wants children. I'm just going to go on maternity leave. Or was there any sort of anxiety about your career and what it means about where you are in your career?
1: I love that question, too. Nope. And I'll be honest, so I had my first kid when I was at The New York Times, and I had my second mm-hmm. kid uh when I was at facebook and at both places um I'm sure there there are moments of like little sprinkles of fear, nothing that I honestly like cling to or remember where I was in my career at the New York Times when I had my first kid, I still believe that you know, because of my company standing and, you know, what I was bringing to the table, as well as like where the company was as a whole, that when I came back, I didn't feel any danger of losing my job. I was never the sort of person that felt like, if I leave, person X is going to skip the line and get ahead of Mm. me, you know, because honestly, day to day, there were I can count on my hands and toes and beyond, you know, (laughs) how many people like, I've seen, advance. And I felt like, oh, okay, like, <laughs> if we were comparing <laughs> a lot of questions, you know. Mm-hmm. So going on maternity leave, for me, I didn't feel, you know, a sense of, of risk there. And I feel really blessed to be able to say those words, because that is not everyone. And that, that's probably not even everyone's experience at, you know, mm-hmm. the same companies. And then when I was at Facebook, They're a very family oriented company. So even though it's a lot of young people, you know, around the world who work there in general, it's the culture is just very family aware. And it was like and and the place, the only constant at that company is change. So, I wouldn't be surprised if I came back and, you know, they're like, "Oh, your team has been completely restructured." And I would to me, I would just be like, "Okay, so where is my opportunity?" Like I need I'm going to help figure out. I knew that I had managers and company leaders who would work through any sort of unforeseen change, but honestly, I was just excited to get back to work and yeah. um, I had uh, written a proposal for a job that didn't exist and I had a lot of, you know, executive support there. So, I was excited to be in the room of adults again. That was really where my mm-hmm. head was, you know. Yeah. And then you
0: come back and, and all the changes going on and then some really, really big change happens and you end up as editor-in-chief of Refinery 21, which is a millennial, worship the publication. So how did that happen? Was that always secretly the plan? Was How, how did it come about?
1: Definitely not secretly the plan. It's something that I've always wanted mm-hmm. uh, my whole life, but not – you know, secretly the plan. Great question. I would say that, um, when I went to Facebook, I was very open and I didn't, you know, have a clear, I, I had done a lot of the things that I set out to do. And I did, I, I was one of those people who had a five-year plan. Mm-hmm. And by the time I got to Facebook, I was like, Oh, I did what I wanted to do with my Condé job. So, you know, at a lore, so like what's next. And also I never pictured myself at a platform in a million years. So, that also was like, okay, I'm a student now. Like I was a student before because in digital media, you can't get complacent. Things change every day. Mm-hmm. You have to keep educating yourself every single day. But even more so, like my learning curve was very steep just in terms of company jargon, you know, and just yeah. even the structure of the company, you know, you can plot me in any media outlet and I'll know who to go to for what after two weeks. But like in, in tech, I was like, I don't even understand the structure of this company. Yeah. It's so big, you know, et cetera. So for me, I was very much a student again, and after I got through that part, it was like, okay, where like, where do I want to do next? What might I want to do next? And how can I like slam dunk this job? Not just for the sake of saying I slam dunk this job, but like get that um, personal fulfillment and and um, you know keep my intellect sharp. And also what I loved about that job was that and the main reason I took it is because I had a 50 foot view of the entire industry and Mm -hmm. worked really closely with the part of the industry that is my passion, you know, lifestyle, fashion beauty, personal stories. And that was very cool to like not just work at one company, but have that view across many. And so Mm -hmm. that's where I was like, okay, this like I'm basically in grad school right now. That's how I felt, right. you know, it's another education. Totally. It's another education. And so that's how I looked at that. And that sort of set me in a place where I got to meet a lot of interesting people. And I started paying attention to, you know, who are the movers and shakers of my peers, people who aren't my peers, all the above. And then when a uh, vice media group reached out about the refinery role, refinery, you know, there's very few brands, I'll be honest, that I would leave Facebook and Instagram for like, right. I love my job there. I love the people there. Incredible place to work. And, and not without its challenges, but like just from the heart, it's a, it's a great place to be there. Um, and I was, I felt challenged, you know, I wasn't like, Oh, I'm done with this job. I've done everything I can do far from mm-hmm, that place. Mm-hmm. And so um, when, when Vice Media Group reached out about the refinery job, I'm like, I've always loved refinery. Like mm-hmm. Refin- I've just always loved that brand. Um, so really honored to be called on, but also felt like, oh yeah, I have a lot to bring to the table. Like I would mm-hmm. love to help shape, you know, how this brand evolves into the future. That, that would be an incredible challenge. And I feel like this, everything that I've been doing up until, up until that point has trained me for this job. So I felt empowered to be able to do it, but also to continue to learn.
0: And Refinery has done so many amazing digital first and in-person experiences. One of my favorite initiatives of Refinery29 has been 29 Rooms. I've gone several years. I think it's a really cool example of bringing the commercial, the digital, the in-person experience to showcase brands. And so as I said, Refinery29 has always been digital first, but there's still so much continued disruption in the space. So how do you aim to bridge the gap between the company and the audience and really work with the disruption that's happening?
1: Yeah, for us, it's about community. You know, how do we make sure that we're bear hugging our loyalists? And how do we even, you know, continue to go deeper in those places where people are loyal, you know, and our Money Mm -hmm. Diaries franchise is a really good example of that, where our Money Diaries loyalists, they're around the world, um, they look for this, this, you know, they look for the series, they seek it out, they talk to their friends about it. I'll be in random places and people will mention it to me. It's um, huge. I'll be on, yeah, you know, and I'll be in unrelated calls. People will, will, you know, mention it to me. And so there's already that community there. Same thing for, um, our sub brand and bothered and somos. And so how mm-hmm. do we go deeper and deeper? Like there's always an opportunity there to do more. And again, it's about, you know, being strategic about how we prioritize.
0: With that, I know we've spoken about so many different things, but the one question I want to leave you with is where do you see yourself and your industry one month from now, one year from now, and 10 years from now? <laughs>
1: uh, one month from now, I think it's, it's, everyone's going to continue pacing to better understand their audience and better reach their audience in more direct ways. Um, one year from now, it's, it's probably, this is probably the hardest time to answer any future questions. I used to laugh mm-hmm. at people and say, where do you see your industry five years from now? And I'm like, what? Next year? I, you know, <laughs> like digital media, the rate of change is just getting faster and faster. Um, totally. But one year from now, I really think that the world will be a slightly safer place. There's pockets of the world now that are are you know um, dealing with COVID and and, and you know the things are better. People are able to interact more than they were, and I believe that um, globally we will be in a better place a year from now. And I think honestly, like all the pent up sort of joy and creativity and um, whatever it is that you've got pent up, you know, like where we're going to release it. I think you know, we're going to see a, a, a storm of creativity. And I think that Refinery um, and our sister brands at Vice Media Group, I think we're going to be really well positioned to give a platform to people who don't normally have a platform and and to be able to um, really connect in our audience in meaningful ways, not just for like checking off a marketing box, but really mm-hmm. connecting our, with our audience on the things that they care most about. So I think a year from now, it'll be lots of IRL connections and going deeper because people have spent a lot of time thinking about what matters to them. Right. Right. And, and how they, how they spend their time, how they spend their money, who they love, what they love, et cetera. So um, we're going to be on that journey with our audience. And then 10 years from now only, I only have dreams. Like what I think would be cool is, you know, how when you like maybe brush your teeth in front of a mirror or put on eyeliner or whatever you do in the morning, I paint my eyebrows on like Picasso Mm -hmm. Um, but however you use your morning, I think it would be cool if mirrors had, you know, sort of like your news crawls, you know, and you could, it's personalized and, Mm and you've seen it in movies, but it's that one thing that for me, I would love to have surfaces be able to provide me content, you know, and I want it to be personalized content. So for all the brands, including my own, but all the brands in the world that, you know, are saying something interesting or that informing me or giving me different perspectives or voices I haven't heard before, voices that I love, all the above. I want that to come at me while I'm in the shower. Um, And obviously for some people, this is podcast, but for me, I'm a more visual person. So I would love that while I'm brushing my teeth. Cause those are the minutes where I'm like, I'm only standing still right now because (laughs) I want to have good teeth. Like, I'd rather be reading something or doing something. Um, And I would love for, for our digital um, landscape to include that so that we can begin to tell stories like that. And, you know, there's lots of other brands, you know, toying with that and other tech companies toying with that, but I can't wait for that moment because I think, the media world in particular is going to love it. I think all of you know these outlets, we're all going to be doing cartwheels, trying to figure out how we can Literally. tell stories. You know, it's going to be fun.
0: Simone, you'll still be saying, Zoya, stop spending $7 on matcha lattes. You live in New York City. Get it together while I brush my teeth.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Listen, there's no judgment from over here about how mm-hmm. you spend your money whatsoever. With yeah, that. Was- if that $7 latte brings you joy, then you'll find... I'll find a way to figure it out. No, I love it. I love it.
0: Well, thank you so much for coming on and joining us today. And thank you so much for giving us opportunity to see such amazing leadership in this space.
1: Thank you so much for having me. This has been a wonderful conversation.
0: Thanks for listening to Win Win, brought to you by WIN, women in innovation, and myself, Zoya Kozakal. If you enjoy this podcast, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and visit womeninnovation.co to learn more about our organization, programming, and other opportunities. And remember, when women innovate, we all win.